0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: I think the reality on the ground in China is that it is turning from the factory of the world into a market of the world. Last year, private consumption accounted for about $5 trillion. And China becomes the largest market for General Motors. General Motors sells more cars in China than in the United States. And in fact, than the entire North America, including Mexico and Canada. Wei Shan's journey
0: is a metaphor for how far China has come in 50 years. He grew up hungry, then toiled in a hard labor camp. Now that China's economy has morphed from an agrarian backwater into the second biggest on the planet Shen finds himself managing a $30 billion private equity fund, Asia's largest. Where China has been and where it needs to go. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice, fiduciaries for families, evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments. With more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining me from New York is Wei Jian Shen, chairman and CEO of PAG, the largest Asia based private equity firm. It manages $30 billion in capital. His new book is Out of the Gobi My Story of China and America. How are you, sir? I'm very good, even though it's very cold here. (laughs) I can understand it's a cold snap.
1: Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you.
0: It's a fascinating book that actually now that we hear about China being the the biggest economic juggernaut that the the world has seen in in ages, and you to take us back to poverty and hunger and all of these different uh, agonies that you and your family endured during the Great Leap Forward, um, I'm quoting from the book. It says, This is the story, as the book says, your improbable journey from the People's Republic of China to the People's Republic of Berkeley, California, and beyond. It's a uniquely American success story told with a splash of humor, deep insight, and rich and engaging detail. Uh, You were witness to the brutality and absurdity of Mao Zedong's policies during one of the most tumultuous eras in China's history. You were exiled to the Gobi Desert at age 15, and you spent your formative years doing hard labor. You were also denied schooling for 10 years and a secondary education altogether. Even so, you went on and came to the United States. You hold an MA and a PhD from Berkeley, an MBA from the University of San Francisco. You studied English at the Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade. Um, Wow, You, you persevered in spite of all of these travails, and now it must be so surreal for you to read about China's economic inevitability in the headlines.
1: It is. I think we have traveled very far from 40, 50 years ago when I uh, spent uh, so much time in the Gobi Desert as a hard labor. What you have just read is put together by my publisher. I think they have done a very good job summarizing things.
0: Now, when I read the book, the the image, the lasting image that I'm going to take away from it is this China of poverty but ambition during Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward, where he encouraged the country to take this leap forward uh, through I mean, harebrained schemes in hindsight, for example, everybody making these micro-smelters of, of, of steel in their backyards where they collect, collect scrap metal and they have them in these furnaces and these kilns, um, and that if they pull these things together, that China can have the capacity to take on the world and not be dependent on uh, steel imports. I mean, it's, it's kind of risible in hindsight.
1: <laughs> I think that was the objective of Mao Zedong at the time, and his first objective was to take over England as a large steel producer. And I think he strongly believed in the people's war, and therefore he thought the way to do it was to mobilize the masses to produce steel in everybody's backyard. And in hindsight, not too far away from that particular time, people realized It was simple madness, it was crazy, and didn't produce anything useful. It was total waste of effort and a lot of resources. Now we
0: do, China did ultimately become one of the most miraculous stories in the history of economic development. I'm quoting a story from Quartz that said, since China began its market reforms in the late 1970s, it has lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty, slashing the the poverty rate from nearly 90% in 1981 under 2% today is measured by the World Bank's latest spending benchmark. That's
1: pretty unbelievable. Yes, it is. In fact, about 40 years ago, when China's open door policy was first adopted, economic reform first started, the per capita income of China was merely about 400 uh, US dollars, which was below poverty line, Uh, Almost for any country and today the per capita GDP of the country is close to 10,000 US dollars Although it is still one-sixth that of the United States So China still has a very long way to go but has come a very long way in the past 40 years
0: Now it says China's per capita GDP went from being less than Bangladesh's in 1980. That was under two hundred dollars to more than eight thousand dollars today If you look back at this and in reading the book, and always people ask me, what was the tipping point? What changed? I mean, certainly a lot of us in the 1980s were told that Japan was going to inherit the world. And we have to learn from the Japanese. And everybody was taking Japanese in college. And there were movies like Gung Ho, and it completely captured the zeitgeist. And I remember at some point in the early 90s, there was a tipping point where we were getting calls from relatives and professors in in high school and college were telling us that, no, it's actually – China, who is ready to inherit the next century economically, what do you think was the tipping point, both from a demographic perspective or a central planning perspective? If you take us back in your lifetime, the one decision, the one variable that that put China on this kind of inexorable path?
1: You see, in my book, Out of the Gobi, I described how we worked in the Gobi Desert before China opened up. millions of young people were sent to the countryside to do agriculture, to do hard labor. At that time, all the economic activities were controlled by the government, almost 100% of it, there was nothing left. And yet China was in dire poverty and the economy was a disaster. And uh, I was making something like $10 per year, Of course, we were provided with some food and uh, clothing, not enough. But the take-home pay was just about $10 a year. And that was the state of economic affairs that we were in at that time. And what happened in 1978-79, when China started to open up, was to abandon the central planned system, the old system of central planning, which was very similar to the Soviet Union, and embarked upon a path in the direction of free market. So in the past 40 years, it was strong economic growth, but it was also a history of the growth of China's market. And it was the growth of the private sector, which I would say is mainly responsible for China's growth in the past 40 years.
0: You write in your book of your early childhood, you could say, My mother was always the last to eat, although I did not realize that she was famished. I could see my mother's face and legs gradually turn puffy and her skin translucent. She showed me that if she sank the tip of her finger into the flesh of her leg, the dent would stay there for a long time as if the flesh was made of dough. You wrote that I did help my mother to get more food, however, always sensing it was needed. There were a few elm trees in our compound. We learned that elm seeds could be eaten. I picked up the seeds shaken down by the bigger children and brought them home. My mother would mix them with flour and cook them. I probably got a bite or two, but I do not remember really eating them. I also went around to find edible wild plants in every corner to collect them and bring them home. And when we step back from this and we we, we finally realized that the, the Great Leap Forward and Mao's uh, great plan uh, actually provided one of the biggest human catastrophes in terms of famine, there is an estimate that... 20 million to 36 million chinese upward of 5% of the population died during 1958 to 1962's leap forward and that is a trauma that the entire nation really tried to recover from it, it 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 was emblazoned onto its memory into the 20 years leading up to the early 80s and that
1: is correct and you know today china has the highest savings rate in the world about 50% And uh, you know why the Chinese save so much? I think a lot of people in my generation still remember the starvation. And therefore, they're still concerned about the rainy day. And that experience was a very painful experience.
0: It's like the stories of of our grandparents who are telling us about the Great Depression here, who they're they're reluctant to throw away soap in the shower when it's worn down, that they never want to waste anything. They'd rather recycle and reuse. They think twice about giving away that old threadbare sweater or coat, Uh, but even so, this country has moved on in a way that is unbelievable. By the end of last year, there still remain more than 43 million Chinese citizens living below the nation's official poverty line of 2,300 yuan. That's annually about
1: $350. Yes. China has come a long way. China has lifted more people out of poverty in the recent history than anybody else, any other countries combined. But China is a very big country with a population of 1.4 billion people. China still ranks number 72 in terms of per capita income in the world. So China still has a lot of problems internally to deal with. And uh, you know there's more to go and there's a long way to go.
0: And Chen, here's a problem that it seems everybody would want to have. China's economic expansion, this says the Wall Street Journal, languished to its slowest pace in nearly three decades last year as a bruising trade fight with the U.S. exacerbated weakness in the world's second largest economy. So writes the Wall Street Journal. The 6.6% growth rate for 2018 is the slowest annual pace China has recorded since 1980. Uh, How is that possible that that's a problem? I mean, we would die for that kind of growth.
1: I think the data you just cited are not accurate. Uh, it is true that last year the economic growth rate slowed down to 6.6%, but it was not the slowest since 1980. There were some slower years in 1989, 1990, and I believe 1991 as well. Those were slow years. But it was also true, it is also true that in the past 40 years, and China's growth has never stopped. And China has grown faster or slower. But on average, until five years ago, the economic growth rate has averaged about 10 percent, double digit. 10 percent. Yeah. To quote The Wall Street Journal, a long way from a pace
0: of expansion that averaged nearly 10 percent annually for more than three decades until slowing in the past decade. The 6.4 percent growth rate in 2018's last quarter is the slowest since the early months of the global financial crisis. Let me ask you, Shen. And it's taboo in some circles. This is such an intensely centrally planned economy, and you don't know if you're dealing with a a full-fledged private bank or a construction company or if it's just a proxy for the government in Beijing. How can you trust
1: the numbers? I'm sure you are asked about this all the time. Well, I don't know the answer for that question, but uh, I do know that uh, a lot of people are looking at it and there are many people doing business in China, China has become a big market for many American companies and many American banks, and uh, companies and banks from other countries as well. So there are economists, there are large institutions, there are world organizations such as the World Bank, IMF, looking at the data. And I think that more or less the data are consistent, and there's no denying, and nobody denies it, that the economic growth rate has slowed down quite sharply last year to a tune of 6.6%. Can you describe the social compact for us? I mean, in this
0: giant mechanism of bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a a whiplashing way that has never been recorded in in history, I think modern or, or going back centuries, how do you do this? I mean, the general read is that people can understand that if they leave the countryside and come to any of these big cities on the coast, there are always manufacturing jobs. Always, uh, whether you're in textiles, whether you're in plastics, whether you're in contract manufacturing or electronics, that that is ultimately the social compact. You can always come to the city or these these uh, incipient megacities and get a job and leave the poverty of you know the agrarian China that that you remember from your youth in, in Mao Zedong's
1: Great Leap Forward. Yes, for many decades, it looks that like China is like a giant construction site from everywhere, from one side of the country to the other side of the country. And a major movement at that time was people, uh, peasants, farmers, moving from the countryside to the cities in search of a job, and they are referred to as migrant workers. And they really helped build many industries and build many infrastructure projects. And uh, you know, in my time, when I was in the Gobi, as I described in the book, in 1969, China experienced the largest reverse urbanization that the human history has ever witnessed. That is about 10% of urban population was sent to the countryside to do hard labor, including myself. But in more recent years, China is experiencing the largest urbanization process. Hundreds of millions of peasants going to the cities to do manufacturing job, to do service job.
0: And then, what? How much of these jobs do you think are ultimately supplied with government money, or the government keeping the furnace burning? I mean, I, that, that's the burning question that everybody has. Are these are, are are these to kind of provide true private sector demand and consumption? these construction jobs or these manufacturing jobs or does the government just have no choice but to keep that furnace running I'm reminded of its much lauded uh, stimulus plan in 2008 during the global financial crisis to continue forward with these high speed trains and these cities and these infrastructure projects and the amount of cement that was consumed just in those three years compared to say the United States in the entire 20th century
1: Yes, that was a very famous uh, data point I think there's uh a a wrong notion that uh, the chinese government controls all the economic activities in china has developed largely because of government control i think that's just wrong china has developed by moving away from centrally controlled system in the direction of a market economy the state owned sector remains fairly sizable but it contributes to about 30% of gdp and I think that's still too big. And What China needs to do is to continue to shrink the state-owned sector. But today, if you look at the private sector, it has become the dominant force in economic growth for China. Today, the private sector contributes more than 50% of the tax revenue for the entire country, more than 60% of the GDP, more than 70% of its R&D spending more than 80% of its industrial output and urban employment, and more than 90% of its exports. In fact, of that 90%, more than half is done by firms owned by foreigners, that is, foreign-owned firms. So that's how big the private sector is, and that is really the largest driver of China's
0: economy today. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Wei Jian Shan. He's chairman and CEO of PAG, the largest Asia-based private equity firm. It manages $30 billion in capital. His new book is Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America. Uh, Yes, you talk about these multinationals coming to China and uh, availing themselves of uh, a labor force and contract manufacturers that could assemble IP at a moment's notice. The company that obviously comes to mind is Apple and the iPhone. At the end of 2015 – Apple claimed that it was responsible for creating and supporting 1.9 million U.S. jobs. Uh, There have been certain stats that Apple has created and supported nearly 5 million jobs in China. That's about two and a half times the jobs the company claims to have created here in its home base, the United States, where it's listed and where it pays taxes. Which necessarily, to my mind, brings up the the, the meaning of life question, Shen.
1: Is Apple really a Chinese company? Uh, Far from it. I think Apple is very much an American company, but China has become a very big market for Apple. Today, I think 20% of Apple's revenue comes from China. It's about $50 billion, it's a very big number, but it amounts to about 20% of its sales. And if you look at every iPhone, it may say made in China, but it also says designed in the United States. I think a large part of the value of a $1,000 iPhone is captured here in the United States. And China does some assembly, some manufacturing, but that's only a small component of the total value of an iPhone. Let me push back on that.
0: An iPhone could not be made without Foxconn. You know, when when this company had its scandals in 2011 and 2012 with the, the, the spate of suicides and the workers... Coming in there and feeling desolate, and, and it infamously put nets on its dormitories to catch uh, despondent uh, workers from its 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 manufacturing facilities from jumping. It was clear that a lot of people were posing the counterfactual question, why don't we build an iPhone here in the United States? And the answer was that it's just not possible. This company, Foxconn, which started making these little plastic switches for black and white TVs to kind of flip the channel, UHF and VHF in the early 80s, now it is arguably the only player out there that has the capability to take the IP, to implement into action, to to marshal all the resources, to cram the chip into place, to... I read one anecdote to slaughter the thousands of pigs necessarily necessary to staff the cafeterias to have these millions of workers to churn out the new iPhone design at moment's notice. Long and short of it is you could not have the next iPhone
1: without this massive Chinese manufacturer. I'm not quite sure if that today has a lot to do with China as opposed to Foxconn. I think that Foxconn's labor practices were called into question a few years ago because of its working conditions over there. And it is true that Foxconn has this large-scale operation, which allows it to probably manufacture at much lower cost than everybody else. But I think the days for China to be the factory of the world are over or are coming to an end. You know, if you look at Chinese exports numbers, China's economic growth historically, in the past 30-40 years, was very much driven by esports. Esports became a large engine of economic growth representing about 36% of GDP by about 2006. But today, that engine has sputtered because today as percentage of GDP has dropped to about 19%. And if you look at the manufacturing scene in China, now here in this country we're talking about uh, manufacturing jobs, but manufacturing jobs are leaving China as well. Why? Because the labor cost there is rising at about 10% per year for the past decade, actually, 11% per year for the past decade. So many factories are moving to Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand. Malaysia, and these other neighboring countries of Asia. I think the reality on the ground in China is that it is turning from the factory of the world into a market of the world. Last year, private consumption accounted for about $5 trillion. And China becomes the largest market for General Motors. General Motors sells more cars in China than in the United States. And in fact, then the entire North America, including Mexico and Canada, and we already talked about the Apple selling about $50 billion worth of goods to China. And if you look at some other tech companies like Qualcomm, 65% of its sales comes from China. Skyworks, 84% comes from China. So I think today, China is very much a market of the world as opposed to be the factory of the world. It's changing. What do you think when you see a company like Apple, which
0: came out recently with a you know, horrible report pointing the finger at China, like we cannot figure China out. The harder you try in this market, the more likely it is that the local manufacturer, somebody like a Huawei or a knockoff of a Huawei, is going to come in and counterfeit you. It's it's way too slippery with intellectual property and the difficulty of coming in and commanding a price premium when there's such small protections. I mean, I had a friend who, who visited... Uh, one of the markets, and showed me a pair of of, uh, counterfeit New Balance sneakers, which look really exactly like the ones that purport to be manufactured here in the United States. But, you know, he bought them for something like $12 as opposed to $120.
1: Yes. Intellectual property protection has been an issue for quite a long time. But I must say that the situation is improving quite rapidly in China today. And the law is there. And what has been weak is enforcement. And if you look at Apple, it doesn't have really a technology or IP dispute with anyone in China. The major dispute is with Qualcomm. And in fact, Qualcomm just won a court case in China to prevent Apple to sell four models in the Chinese market. And Apple reportedly is changing its software in order to meet with the core requirements to sell to the Chinese market. Uh, so the, uh, the dispute is not with any of the Chinese makers, but with Qualcomm, an American company. And I think that China can do more in terms of protection of intellectual property. And I think they are trying to do more. But uh, you know, any uh, multinational company will take that market very ser- seriously and will also take Products of um, their IP very seriously.
0: And it has been compared to resting the bone from the dog's mouth to get the Chinese, uh, especially, you know, the aforementioned post-traumatic stress disorder of the Great Leap Forward and the famine and the tens of millions of people who died to kind of part with their carefully saved money. This is a culture of saving. And when you're trying to make that three-point turn to consumption, it's, it's just brutally difficult. And then, Shan, I try to contrast it with days like um you know was it singles day when uh, it's a cultural peculiarity in china it's the biggest shopping day globally anywhere where people who are single are supposed to go out and assuage their pain by by you know porking out on on buying electronics and clothes and all sorts of stuff and they it's kind of the biggest one or two day sale the world has ever seen
1: yes isn't there black friday here in this country as well Yes, true. I,
0: I, yes, but we are <laughs> we're used to consuming. I mean, we are known we are known as the Americans who've gone out and consumed for a century. With the Chinese, I find that you you see it um, in certain property speculation. You see it on Singles Day, but the co- continued lament I think by policymakers in Beijing and with multinationals like Apple is that it's very hard to get the Chinese to
1: part with their yuan. Otherwise, on consumption. Yes, I think this Singles Day sales. Like Black Friday, it's very much a marketing gimmick. It seems to be quite successful. Whoever created that particular idea, but I think that uh, China is moving into a consumer market. Uh, If you look at the Chinese economic growth in the past forty years, it's very much driven by investments. You know, China in the past ten years has invested. More than 50% of GDP, no other country at any time in history has invested so much at any stage in their industrialization process. Why is China able to invest so much? Because China uniquely has the highest savings rate in the world with about 50% of GDP. But that time is coming to an end because the Chinese population is aging. aging precipitously because of one-child policy. And therefore, the savings rate is dropping. So China's consumption rate as a percentage of GDP uh, was exceedingly low. Five years ago, it was about 35% of GDP in comparison with uh, about 17 percent for the United States. And now that number is changing. Today, private consumption as a percentage of GDP has reached Slightly more than 50 percent. So consumption is going to be the driver of economic growth. And that's why you see so much effort to promote consumption, especially private consumption. Shen,
0: uh, the stat that always blows my mind, in addition to so many of these outsized kind of hyperbolic stats that come out of China, and we'll have some more, is since China became a member of the World Trade Organization on the 11th of December 2001, the country's GDP has exploded from, and correct me if I'm mistaken, $1.3 trillion to $12.24 trillion in 2017. About 10 times. I mean, you talk about a great leap forward, that that right there. I don't think anybody – I remember when we were debating it in 2000, the final year that should we uh, even debate most favored nation trading status, China's human rights record and people would pay lip service to it. But you even saw unanimity between the Clinton administration in the 90s and the Bush administration that was coming in and starting office in, in January of 2001 that this was inevitable. You could not keep this giant down. And in fact um, – You know, whether or not the United States wanted to cast a decision every year, China was going to do this. But the WTO extension certainly was the accelerant that we've, you know, I don't think anybody could have predicted in 20 years the economy would have
1: gone up tenfold. I didn't predict it. I didn't think that uh, it will have become so large, but it has. Yes, you're right that uh, in the past uh, almost 20 years, China has grown exceptionally well And uh, again, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, the system has changed. The free market is really a driver of uh, this economic growth.
0: How do you feel, sir, and we are on nearly the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Um, You know, we're talking about the spring and summer of 1989. Where the government did open fire, it's disputed how many people died. Uh, certainly, in China right now, because of the Great Firewall, you can't Google these things. Nobody can see a photo of the Tank Man. And you write in the book about your um, your alarm when people came to quote you, and you thought that never in a thousand years would the government actually allow the troops to open fire on the student protesters. But certainly, I remember, you know, watching Bernard Shaw on CNN that the TVs were shut down. CBS said we have to pack up and go, and and this happened. And shortly after that is when we were told that the government made its compromise with the people, that we're going to give you two doors, that you can go down the economic door and almost cover yourself in this form of capitalism within this authoritarian state, and you can become a billionaire conceivably in this country. But if you go down the political route and and questioning us and dissidents, we will come down with an even harder fist. Take me back to your memories of what happened then and, and your thoughts now 30 years almost after
1: it. It was a very tragic event. And it was very unfortunate. At the time, 30 years ago, I was a professor at Wharton School. And we watched on TV as the events folded. And uh, we all know what happened. But after 1989, just now, I made reference to the fact that there were three years where China's economic growth rate was lower than last year. And that was 89, 90, and 91 there was a real fear that china was going to go back to the old system after the tiananmen event the tiananmen square event and, uh, and in fact economic reforms stopped right after that and there was a lot of worry about the old system creeping back but you know the result was of course the economic growth slowed down significantly but in 1992 Deng Xiaoping, who was the paramount leader, did a so-called southern tour. He took a tour in southern parts of China, and he made some remarks, one of which was the true test of truth is whether or not you will be able to develop the economy. Forget about this debate between socialism and capitalism. If the cat can catch the mice, it's a good cat. And whether or not it's black or white, white. so that's one thing he said. The hard truth is economic development. And then he also said, whoever who is not engaged in economic reforms, and that's a code word for moving in the direction of the market, should step down. And after that, the entire China took off in terms of economic growth. I think if I remember correctly, in that particular year, the economy grew by about 14%. So it is very clear that what saves China and what makes China such a viable economy is the market. And that is the success of uh, you know, open door policy and economic reform. Okay, granted, Chen, but, but and I hate to use the term opiate of the masses, but you know, there, this
0: wasn't just isolated in Beijing. I, I recall reading that hundreds of cities nationwide experienced dissent that spring of eighty nine, and leading into the the crackdown and the firing on protesters in Tiananmen Square uh, to start June of eighty nine. Those those seeds of dissent are no longer there because the country has has found its its economic animal spirit. Is that what I'm to understand? Because in many ways, uh, it's become it, it has not eased. It has not become an easier country in terms of uh, stifling dissent or being open to dissent. You have a surveillance state where this country leads the world in facial recognition technology. Imagine a bunch of students gathering today in 2019, 30 years after Tiananmen Square. They would be recognized. They're recognized as they go onto the trains, as they step onto buses. Um, The internet is centrally planned. It, It would be even harder to organize today. And so anybody who thought that economic development would bring with it kind of a
1: democratic opening and an easing of autocracy has been proved wrong I think that uh, if you look at uh, the history of China's development in the past 40 years It has made some progress 40 years ago when I was working in the Gobi as a hard labor as I described in my book out of the Gobi there was no freedom to speak of We didn't have any economic freedom. We didn't have the freedom to choose our job. We didn't have freedom to work somewhere. We were assigned to a particular place. We didn't even have the freedom to have a girlfriend, right? Today, you have much more than that time. Now, if you don't like your job in the state-owned sector, you can quit and join a private company. If you don't like your job, you can quit. You can start your own business. You can go abroad. So there's much more freedom if you compare China today with its past. But China has a long way to go in terms of moving in the direction of liberal democracy. And uh, I personally hope that uh, we can move faster. But that's not reality on the ground today.
0: Shen, I know we keep shuttling back and forth in history, but this book was so fascinating in the contrast with you and and hard labor and abject poverty in your youth. um, I'd like you to take me back to the time when you were allowed to come to the United States after the Cultural Revolution to get your degree at the University of San Francisco. What was it, in 1980?
1: That was in 1980, yes.
0: What was it like to set foot, to go on a plane, to come to the United States? Give me your first impression of the United
1: States. I was very excited to come to this country. I read about it for a long time, so I would say that I was quite familiar with the country conceptually from reading the books. But uh, I, uh, you know, when, when I finally was able to come to this country, I was still very surprised to uh, uh, witness all the, uh, uh, what I would say, all the green in this country. I thought, I would see a lot of uh, uh, concrete buildings, but what I saw was you know, beautiful mountains and, and trees and, and river uh, right adjacent uh, to the city or even in the city. But I think what impressed me most when I first came to this country was how friendly people were. And there I was from what people call Red China. And uh, there were very few Chinese students coming to America in early 1980s, and I was among the first ones. But so many people came to me and became my friends and guided me uh, in my daily life and helped me in my studies. And uh, in fact, when I was studying at University of San Francisco, um, my professor even donated Money to help cover my tuition fees, so that I could get a degree uh, in this country. So I'm most touched by the friendliness and generosity of Americans, and I think that has left me with probably the deepest impression than anything else.
0: It's interesting, you know. San Francisco has a history, especially with Chinese Americans. If you look at some of the wealthier families who've been there uh, since the the mid 19th century, a lot were involved in. In construction and the founding of the city, and certainly, it's it's Chinatown is very distinctive. What was your interaction? I, I was fascinating reading the book with some of the old money Chinese in the United States. That contrasts with you coming from a country that was still uh, really in its developed infancy, with people who had experienced nearly kind of a hundred years of, of living on the wealthiest country on the planet.
1: Yeah, when I first came to America, I didn't interact so much with uh, American Chinese or Chinese Americans who live in Chinatown for some reason. I suppose they speak a different uh, dialect, they speak Cantonese. And I suppose at the time, many people were very much pro-Taiwan as opposed to the mainland China. And I didn't interact so much with them. But uh, I was reminded of the history of the Chinese emigration to the United States. After I finished my MBA program at University of San Francisco. In fact, after I became a professor at Wharton School, I gave some money, a small donation, to the University of San Francisco, which has been so generous to me when I was a student over there. And uh, in return, they gave me a piece of brick which bears a cross on it. And then I was told the story that uh, many years ago when the university was first built the contract for construction was awarded to Chinese laborers but the European laborers protested and therefore part of the contract was taken away from Chinese laborers to be given to European laborers. The Europeans in order to differentiate themselves from the Chinese put a cross on each of the bricks that they made so this symbol of discrimination against Chinese, this a break with the cross on it was given to me as, as token of appreciation for my little contribution to the university. I thought the history has made a giant loop back, and uh, I thought that's very ironic and very interesting as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Wei Jian Shen.
0: He's chairman and CEO of PAG, the largest Asian private equity firm. It manages $30 billion in capital. His new book, Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America, uh, Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair, wrote the foreword. And um, Diane Feinstein, senator from California, your friend, uh, she wrote a personal history of China in its Mao and post-Mao periods written by one of China's brightest people. Worth reading and, more importantly, understanding the great leap forward. Um, sir... I always have this question that I pose of of investors. I mean, be there people who don't have a China specialty or we've had a person who – a hedge fund investor, a famous hedge fund investor in the United States whose central thesis is that China is the biggest bubble in history and it's something that's going to have to blow at some point. We saw some indication with these headlines of China having its slowest growth rate maybe since the early 90s. But what if – what if, and I always pose this question and, and and try to simulate it for me, what happens in the event of a hard landing for China, or finally a a true deep recession or depression for the first time in the post WTO period that the government cannot spend its way out of? Um, how would that how would that work in real time? For example, would the street become restive? Would you have protests? Would you have subsidies cut? Um, unemployment? How does that? How does that kind of simulation
1: work out in your mind? Um, Certainly we get millions of different answers from our guests. You would find that almost in every developing country, the legitimacy of the government comes from being able to deliver economic growth and better living standard. And if people cannot enjoy a better living standard year after year, I think there will be trouble. There will be political tension there will be political trouble. We have seen this historically in many different countries. I think China will not be an exception. And therefore, I think it is paramount for the country to continue to grow its economy. But how do you do that? I don't think that the government itself will have the ability to grow the economy. Again, as I mentioned earlier in this show, that when I was in the Gobi working as a hard laborer 40 years ago, Every economic activity was controlled by the government, and yet the economy was not getting anywhere. In fact, it was going down. The only way that China has developed is to allow a private sector to thrive, is to engage in economic reforms, is to shrink, making smaller the state-owned sector. So I think the best way to propel Chinese economic growth is to continue to allow the private sector to thrive. The market will take care of itself. It's not the will of the government, it's the will of the market. And that's where China needs to go. And China still has a long way to go. But Chen, as you know, that that's a great leap of faith
0: that no no power-hungry or self-preservation-minded government or centrally planned government wants to take. Um, It is chiefly interested in power. I mean, otherwise, we may have seen that if everybody is getting rich, capitalism is the new religion of this country. You would ease on protests. You would ease on political dissent. If anything, it was it was not that way we've seen every indication that this government and its premier now who has potentially you know king like status or emperor like status they are are hell bent if you're going to uh you know dissent in this environment you can grow as much as you want you can be employed as gainfully as you want to be but uh it's not getting any easier for people there and i wonder how that is going to jibe with this this push from certain circles that yes you need to keep privatizing these enormous state controlled companies. You need to let the economy float. You need to have the currency maybe float more than it has so far, but that doesn't go hand in hand with you know, controlling the labor force and the rest of the population, much like kind of the Water Management Board or the Tennessee Valley Authority might manage a dam very carefully.
1: <laughs> I think you have made a very good point. I strongly believe in economic imperatives, and that is eventually the economic imperatives drive a political process but china today is a very different society and you know if you look at labor mobility for example uh, this country is known for its labor mobility but i would say that in this country white-collar labor mobility is very high but blue-collar labor mobility is relatively low you know if you're a detroit worker it's very difficult for you to just pick up everything and bring your family to, say, California or New York City. But in China, the opposite is true. In China, blue-collar labor mobility is relatively very high. Why is that the case? Because many of those workers were so-called migrant workers. They were former peasants, farmers, who left their villages, who left the countryside to come to the cities to look for a job. And they can work in Beijing, they can work in Shanghai, they can work in Shenzhen, they can work anywhere in the country. And therefore, the blue-collar mobility is extremely high in China, which is kind of paradoxical uh, if you think about it, comparing China with the United States. But when you have a country 1.4 billion people, and when, when you have such high labor mobility, to try to control everything is, is very hard. So you always see this kind of tug of force uh, between the effort to control and the inability for the government to control so much. For my preference, of course, China needs to move in the direction of more freedom, less control, and I also believe that's economically necessary. For example, you know, Shanghai wants to become the financial center of Asia, if not the world. Today. Hong Kong is a financial center of Asia. Now, how can you become a financial center of anything if there's no free flow of information, for example? If you cannot get today's news, and uh, you can't do it without a free convertible currency either. So I think that the process may take a very long time, but that's the direction that we need to go.
0: Tell me this. Uh, before I, le- I, I don't want to let this this concept go because there must be times. I know you're hyperactive. You're a hyperactive deal maker. You're constantly reading. We read all this stuff in, in the many profiles of you in the press. But sometimes at night, before you 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 let your eyes kind of you know come down and you fall asleep. If you ever worry about a worst case scenario, the law of economic physics, if there is such a thing, says that every economy has to have hard landings. You can't centrally plan it. To have the sugar high every year of double digit growth or even high single digit growth, when and if it does come to China, um, is that necessarily bad for the United States? And I know it's a bit of a jingoistic thing to ask for you, but I read a fascinating research note in Grant's Interest Rate Observer sometime in 2011 that said it wouldn't be such a bad thing necessarily if China had a hard landing. Think about. Oil prices—what they would fall back down to if China was not the bidder of size anymore. Think about raw materials. Think about soya beans. Yes, you would have a ton of countries that are dependent on Chinese demand, such as Peru and copper, Argentina and, and certain agricultural exports in Brazil. You'd have them fall hard, but the, the the price gains for the the wealthy economies, like
1: people in the United States, would kind of would would, would put a buffer under that. I think that view today is totally wrong, because. The Chinese economy has become too significant. The Chinese market has become too significant for the rest of the world, including the United States. We have already talked about the fact that General Motors sell more cars in China than in the United States, and Apple and others have large market shares in the China market. There was a saying about, uh, I would say, in the 1980s and 1990s that uh, if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches cold. And uh, you, know, you see to some extent that effect today with China. So when Apple announced that it was missing sales forecast in the China market, its stock dropped 10%. The broad market on that day dropped about 3%. So that means that when China coughs and sneezes, the rest of the world you know, at least will have to cough. And that's to what extent the world economy has become so integrated. So Shen, you have to you have to shoot this down a lot when you meet
0: Americans and students who say, "Well, we don't really export anything to China." The the trade imbalance $150 is so. Hundred fifty
1: billion dollars, and that's a big number, and that's just trade. And America also enjoys very large uh, surplus in the service trade, that is, selling movies, selling software, and so forth to China. So it's a very big market. If you look at large American companies, let's say S&P 500, the, uh, the, the top, I would say 10% of those companies sell at least $150 billion worth of goods in the China market. So it's a market to be reckoned with. It's, it's growing as well. We talk about companies
0: like Caterpillar and Boeing and United Technologies and certainly you know, areas that we have a, a comparative advantage in some of the multinationals that absolutely uh, live and die off of, of
1: Chinese demand. And not only that, Starbucks, Corning, Nike, all these consumer companies.
0: We're always told Yum and KFC that that Kentucky Fried Chicken, while it's no great shakes in the United States anymore, Chick-fil-A is beating it here. It's something that the Chinese love and and Starbucks, an important growth market for it, is is in China.
1: Yum has probably about 8,000 stores in China, only in that market. 8,000 KFCs, are there Taco Bells and other concepts there as well? KFCs, mostly KFCs. If I remember that data correctly, you have to fact check on that particular point. But thousands of stores over there, McDonald's as well, the market has become very big. And uh, the scale is comparable to that of the United States. We invested in a company, a musical platform, uh, just about five years ago. At that time, we invested just about $100 million and became a majority shareholder. But it had hardly any business. But it had Many license the copyrights, covering about 70% of China's digital market. And today, the company is listed on New York Stock Exchange. This is only five years later, with the market cap more than $20 billion. You know how many unique active monthly users we have for that platform? 800 million oh. monthly active users. Only in China would you find such a large consumer base. So... If a business model is successful, then you can replicate it very quickly throughout China to get the scale. Same model, if you bring it to Singapore, it wouldn't get anywhere because the population is only about 6-7 million people. But China has the scale, has the population. And that matters to all the big companies, including all the names that you have mentioned. Shan, to that extent, when are you going to see
0: uh, a Chinese national champion, successfully by a United States company. I remember there was controversy over the Conoco deal. And, and certainly this blurs the line between national security and state secrets on both sides. But you, you saw, I believe, was it
1: Smithfield that was bought here in the United States, the big pork concern? Yes, Smithfield was bought by a Chinese company. Yes, there's very big appetite for pork. Was Genworth acquired by a Chinese company as well? That I'm not
0: familiar with. So I but- don't, when are you going to see the big transaction? I think for Americans, the, the iconic one was when Rockefeller Center was briefly owned by the Japanese in the late 80s at the kind of point of, of peak bubble. When are you going to see that as a kind of a, you know, the apotheosis of normalization that, you know, China is not necessarily your enemy in this case. It could really help accelerate you. It has the know-how and the IP and the expertise and the, and the capital to really fast charge a company. I mean, I can't help but think of a Tesla for example. Tesla is a company that's always kind of burning through cash. You wonder if uh, the Chinese were to come in and, you know, the Chinese state investment firm and invest in a company like Tesla. Do you do you ever wonder about these simulations in your head?
1: <laughs> yes, I, I will make two points. Uh, I actually very enjoyed uh, what you have just said about the Japanese and comparing uh, Japan with, with China. I remember in 1980s when The Japanese bought Rockefeller. They also were buying a lot of real estate in Hawaii. And there was a joke that uh, Japan shouldn't have attacked Pearl Harbor. They should just have waited to buy the entire Hawaii. (laughs) Uh, But in fact, that was perhaps the height or the peak of Japanese economic bubble. It didn't end so well. And Japan now talks about the last 20 years, which kind of started uh, at about that time. Talking about Tesla, which is, of course, um, making a great effort in, in this country, but it also made sure that uh, it doesn't lose sight of China as a major market. At this very moment, sure. Tesla is building a large factory in Shanghai with the annual capacity of about half million cars. I, I think that's larger than any of the factories that they built. Uh, here in the United States. But that's not for S-Force. That's for the Chinese market. So so that market is uh, you know, is big enough for everybody to uh, to focus on. Shen, in closing,
0: I know we talked about the, the perils of the Chinese saving too much and not consuming You know, after the PTSD of the Cultural Revolution. But what about the Chinese investor? I'm struck, for example, when you look at the economy growing 10 times since uh, China joined the WTO, in uh, 2001, you look at the, the local stock market, the Shenzhen, uh, the, the locally listed shares, the stock market has not begun to participate anywhere in line with that. A lot of people lament that the stock market there is not taken seriously. It's a, it's a gambler's paradise, or people will invest in shares if they close with an eight on the price somewhere, or, or people are much more given to property speculation in China. What do you answer when
1: you're asked about the equity culture in China? That's a very good question. I think you have made a very good point. China's economic growth has not been translated in stock market performance. In fact, in the past 20 years, China, China's economy has grown by you know, about 20 times in nominal terms. But uh, the stock market, if you have invested since about 20 some years ago, you have held your investment to today, you probably will have lost money. Why is that the case? That is because Chinese economic model is driven so much by investments. And therefore, the economic, the capital base with which you generate return has become, has grown faster than the increase in earnings. So your return on capital is not growing as fast. And uh, that explains the weak performance in the stock market. I think that uh, the Chinese stock market still has a long way to become mature. And there's some worry about Chinese investment in this country. I wouldn't worry so much about it because I don't think that much of the Chinese investment is sophisticated enough from the point of view of a private equity investor. Last year, Chinese investments in the United States dropped by about 95% because of its internal reasons, capital control and all that. But if you look at the investments made by some Chinese companies, uh, they were not very good investments. They were very similar to the investments that the Japanese made in the 1980s.
0: In closing, Shen? While I have you, and it's been an honor to have you, I want to get your thoughts on how this uh, trade war is going to taper down, how it will end. You finally had a president in the United States that uh, you know, wanted to throw some sand into the gears of, of trade with China and the United States. Uh, what are your plans for it? I know in your columns you have called for a de-escalation. You said that we need each other more than we ever had. It's it's uh, really not uh, as zero-sum as as many people make it out to be. Where does this go? I
1: think the two countries will find a way to resolve their differences, to perhaps uh, open up more to each other. And uh, I think that the trade imbalance is a reality and it's an issue that needs to be addressed. I think everybody, especially every economist, knows that trade is better than no trade, more trade is better than less trade, and trade war is harmful and painful to both sides involved and, and therefore it is in the interest of the parties to find a solution. And I just hope that they adopt measures so that China can open up more for trade, for investments and can privatize its state-owned sector further and to provide better protection for intellectual properties. And if China does that as part of the package to resolve the trade disputes disputes, uh, between the two countries, it's good for China's trading partners, but it's also good for China because that's the direction in which China needs to go as well. Wei Jian Shen, I cannot thank you enough, sir. It's all my pleasure. Thank you very much for having
0: me. From a childhood of hunger and hard labor in China to now chairman and CEO of PAG, the largest Asia-based private equity firm. It totes $30 billion in capital. Uh, Wei Jian Shen's book is Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America. You must read it. It is on newsstands. You can get it on Amazon from your local seller. Um, sir, thank you. Please join us again. Thank you,
1: Robin. It's a great pleasure.
0: Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Virginia Foundation for Public Media. This show airs on NPR member station WCVE, the NPR One app, and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Rate us, don't hate us. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.